0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: This is a big day here at The Axe Files. Uh, thanks to all of you who have been uh, faithful listeners in the five months we've been doing this podcast. We've now partnered with CNN, uh, and, uh, are part of the CNN Podcast Network. And who better to kick off this new partnership Then John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah, ambassador to China, a guy who started off aspiring to become a rock musician and ended up as a candidate for president of the United States. John Huntsman, you probably think I invited you here because you're a former governor, a former ambassador, because you're a leader of this no-labels movement in American politics, former presidential candidate. No, I invited you here as part of our series on high school dropouts who made good.
0: Uh, I thought it was only because you have good food here, David, but I'm happy to talk about the former.
1: Yes, well, let's, uh, well we we do have that. We do have that. That's essential. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested. I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of how you came to be be interested in politics and interested in, in uh, public service, but we should talk a little bit about how you grew up, and you you did drop out of high school, not uh, it wasn't a log cabin story, so we shouldn't kid anybody <laughs> about that. You, you You came from a very prominent and wealthy family. but you wanted to be
0: a rock star. That's right. That's right. I, I had in fact, politics started in high school for me. Uh, I grew up in California, uh, born in the Navy. My dad was finishing his NROTC scholarship. And then he took a job in the Nixon administration, so we went from California back to Washington. In 1970, and it was my first real exposure to politics of any kind. That was a
1: heck of a time. It right was a the middle of Vietnam. It and, was a tumultuous
0: yeah. time, and I remember well the White House totally surrounded by protesters in the early 70s. The 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 counterculture, the anti-Vietnam mm-hmm. m- movement, et cetera, et cetera. He went to work at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare for a man named Elliot Richardson, who sure, was in the secretary of Massachusetts. Uh, A Brahmin, uh, well thought of, a brilliant public servant. Uh, Uh, Ultimately fired in the Watergate scandal
1: because he wanted to enforce the law. In the the Saturday Night Massacre.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, And and so he served a, a couple of years there, and we moved to Utah, which is where we had roots and where many of our relatives resided. And where I used to spend summers and time off in a little town called Fillmore. Population two thousand, which is where my family's from, and there, uh, my family, uh, my relatives were public school teachers and saloon keepers in this little town of Fillmore. It's uh, it's still that small town today. Although people all the don't Huntsmans think of Utah
1: gone. as a place where there are saloon keepers, but I well, guess there
0: are. Huh? Now, now you get a sense of my my heritage <laughs> and, and the fine balance that they that they had to walk. But uh, so half my family were prodigious. Proselytizers in the LDS Church, and the others were fairly successful saloon keepers in the, <laughs> the Huntsman Saloon. It was probably must the, made holidays interesting. Uh, listen, it was <laughs> the Huntsman Saloon, which burned down uh, uh, in 1938. Uh, circumstances are still rather mysterious. <laughs> But uh, that, that was the watering hole for the political class and the religious class uh, when they would travel from north to south and south to north in those days in the great state of Utah. So we planted ourselves in, in, uh, in Salt Lake City uh, right when I was starting high school. And my dad was just getting a business off the ground. He didn't have a business before that. We didn't have money. We, you know, we, did, we were just regular people. And uh, my dad's dad was, uh, was a public school teacher. He retired as principal of Los Altos High School in California, and visiting him, I got my first real sense of the counterculture in the Bay Area. Uh, the the army. Yes, trucks. Where the other Fillmore was. Where the other Fillmore was, yes. a much different Fillmore. <laughs> a much different Fillmore. And the counterculture was in full blossom yeah. uh, in those years, in the late 60s, early 70s in the Bay Area, where, where he was a school teacher. My other grandfather ran the hardware store in Palo Alto, later became mayor of Palo Alto. Really? Which today would never elect a Republican, of course. Right. Uh, so he was really a huntsman Republican back in the good old days. and
1: When, when the huntsman's belonged in the Republican uh, well, that, Party. that that's yeah.
0: right. <laughs> for another time. <laughs> uh, but the politics for me really started in high school when I ran for class president. Something I never thought I'd do. And I ran for junior class president and, and won. And uh, thought I would continue that. Ran for senior class president and lost. And ran for another office and lost. And uh, linked up with a lovely uh, young lady from the south who'd moved to Salt Lake City who'd run for an office too and lost and we consoled each other as losers and today we're we're married <laughs> and have been for thirty two years ah. and that was uh, how the great romance between uh, my wife and I started at Highland high school
1: so tell me the bit about going to start a rock band but the w- wizard yeah. was that was w- a-
0: i played in, in several different bands but i came up as a piano player originally a classical piano player and as soon as i discovered jazz and improvisation my life changed and uh, i never looked back and i gave up classical uh, uh, music which now my daughter really excels at she's a classical pianist she's played at carnegie hall and studied at the manhattan school of music she doesn't recognize my type of music But I I, I then moved into jazz and played with the jazz band in high school and then from there into rock and played in different rock bands and uh, would gig out at the studio for, you know, an hour here, an hour there, just, you know, uh, uh, as a job. And then was in a few bands. We'd play on the weekends and make a little bit of money uh, playing for school dances or different events. And then we started a fairly serious band called uh, Wizard. Uh, All original music. It was sort of the uh, long-form progressive rock music that you'd remember from Yes or Emerson, Lake & Palmer or Pink Floyd. And uh, we're actually pretty good. Uh, And it was, you know... So am I
1: right, did you leave school to go and pursue this? Well, I
0: did, late in my senior year. Uh, How'd that sit? Well... I look back and I say at least I pursued my love my love and life music but, uh, <laughs> but it left me a, a, a class short that you know uh, I had to make up later as I was moving to the University of Utah um, but but I, my, my, my dad particularly always pushed the idea that you pursue your passion in life with great vigor, uh, energy and enthusiasm. And I, I really thought I could cut it as a musician and loved it and loved uh, playing out with the band. Uh, and it was a fertile time for, uh, for music innovation, uh, and it wasn't to be. So I spent about a year of my time playing out with a band and you know, trying to record an, an album, and it just didn't work. And so I decided to go back to civilian life. <laughs> and With disappointment? with with some disappointment but life moves on Mm -hmm. and uh, and and so did i and i went out as a mormon missionary for two years living uh in third world conditions in taiwan Uh, unable to speak chinese at the time and not knowing where i was or uh, how to talk to anybody or get a meal Uh, and that was a life transforming experience as well for two years on the ground in the late 70s early 80s and did, is that where you learned how to speak? That's then? where I, that's where I was first introduced to Chinese. And after two years, you become pretty fluent. Uh, you have to to get by. Taiwan's a much different place today, but back then, it was a very underdeveloped country. And uh, in order to get by, in order to eat, you know, we just lived off the street for the most part. Lived in different places around the island and in in apartments of various states of disarray. And you you, you got to speak uh, the language in order to survive.
1: Yeah, I should say uh, our first meeting. Uh, I'll get back to this later, but our first meeting was when President Obama, you were the ambassador to China. He came to China. That's right. We were in Shanghai. You introduced him at a town hall meeting. Yes, that none of the that the Chinese were not very enthused about, uh, and you gave a, a. I was so impressed with uh, with your command, not knowing anything that you said. Now I will say. You ended up running uh, uh, in 2012, and I thought, I better go back and look at that introduction that Huntsman
0: gave to. I I don't know exactly what he said about President Obama in that introduction. Well, once you deciphered it, you you pretty much concluded that I said Huntsman in 2012. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I (laughs) said. In Mandarin and Shanghainese, of course. (laughs) Um, So you said it was life changing. How is it life changing? Living in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Life-changing in the sense that I had never seen my country from abroad before. I, I never really appreciated the, the enormous uh, persuasive power that my country had in the world of international affairs, how we could move nations and regions of the world, uh, and how we mattered. To people in Taiwan. And it was right at the time when we were withdrawing our ambassador from Taiwan and recognizing the People's Republic of China along about 1979. So it was a very difficult time between the United States and Taiwan. And I'd get yelled at and cursed at when I'd walk down an alleyway. And I I would wonder why. And I I didn't really have any sense of the broader sort of geopolitical moves that were taking place at the time. But I promised myself on the ground there as a young missionary, I'm going to go back to the United States and learn everything I can about the environment in which all of this is playing out. And if I ever have an opportunity, I'd love to serve in a capacity to help impact uh, the relationships across the Pacific, which I then spent a lot of my life doing. Yeah. you. Well, you ended up being an
1: ambassador to Singapore. You ended up serving in the Reagan administration. Right,
0: and then had a head of the Asian Affairs Bureau in the Commerce Department and U.S. Trade Representative responsible for Asia, Africa, South Asia as well. But uh, So it did a lot of the trade negotiating uh, once China, uh, for example, joined the WTO. And yet when you entered politics,
1: you entered um, as a candidate for governor of Utah, not for senator, not for congressman. Right. Uh, so what was the thinking behind that, given your focus on on global affairs and particularly on the Pacific.
0: Well, I'd always been part of uh, building a business as well in those early years. And we I
1: mean, should point out your your father had spectacular success. He started a chemical uh, company and probably the, most, the wealthiest guy in Utah. I mean, he's...
0: Uh, well, it's hard to know how to measure that. But, you know, it all it all goes into a foundation because we didn't have anything to start with and our family philosophy is we're not going to well, believe in it. Well, in any case, either. he's up but, there. But he's we, done we, well. We started... Um, building the business piece by piece uh, in the early '80s, uh, a small operating business in Belpre, Ohio, that we bought from Shell, and and you know times were bad often, and you'd hit the wall, uh, had no money at all to pay uh, to cover payroll, and some years were pretty good, but the upshot being we added pieces over time, and over about thirty different acquisitions was born Huntsman Corporation. Uh, which we have, my brother's uh, CEO of the business today, and I. We went public uh, the year that I ran for governor in uh, in twenty uh, in two thousand four, um, and so I, I brought along the business experience, the entrepreneurial experience, the executive experience as well, and it it the governorship intrigued me a lot more than being in the Senate, just being one of many and being part of a giant gab fest. It just seemed to me to be. Not the place where I could utilize my talents uh, between business and, and public service that I'd experienced in life so far. Uh, and I'm sure I was you look also... at the Senate today and you're rethinking that and <laughs> thinking yeah. Yeah. the world's greatest deliberative body, you know well it is and and they continue to deliberate as, <laughs> as as one of those bodies i also worked for ronald reagan in his first term as an advance man uh, they call it an advance man back in those days yes. organizing trips they, they, you used to kind seen of seen do the White House. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. exactly what the drill is yeah. and so i i got to travel with with president reagan both uh domestically and abroad and some uh publicly and privately as you do when you're in a position yeah. like that and and was so taken by his leadership style the goodness of his being and the way he treated other people uh, always with respect and the utmost dignity back when elections you know he'd never referred to his opponent by name but basically M- there goes my opponent there you yeah. go again kind of thing <laughs> yes and and that it also struck me that his Model of executive governance was also something that kind of resonated with me. You know, don't waste time in 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 the Senate or the House. Uh, you know, become become a leader, become an ex- a chief executive. And uh, I was at uh, uh, I was working in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative under George W. Bush, and we were going crazy negotiating agreements all over the place. I mean, a very productive period. Uh, I mean, Mike Froman's had a very productive period mm-hmm. as trade representative. But today's you know, trade rep, yeah, yeah, today's trade rep. Uh, and things were going great. And my daughter's, this interesting story, my daughter sat me down after about two and a half years and they were in high school at the time. And they said, dad, we, we'd we kind of like uh, our dad back. And I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, we were always gone. You're traveling, you're always overseas, doing trade deals and you're not around for us. And I thought, you know, fair point. The, the, these are my kids and they're my responsibility. And I said, well, let's take the next weekend and go talk about possibilities, then. and you can, uh, you, can, you can further enlighten me in, in terms of what you think your dad ought to be doing, because I'm doing what, I, what I've always wanted to do and what I've been trained to do. And we took a weekend away, and my daughter sat me down, along with Murray Kay, and they said, w- we'd like to return to our home state, and we think you would make a great candidate for governor. Really? Drafted never th- by your kids, I- I'd, huh? never th- I'd never thought of it before. Really? I mean, you, you think in political terms, you're approached by people who always want to pander, you know, and say, well, you'd be good at this, you'd be good at that. But I never thought about it seriously. And then my daughters brought it up. And I responded by saying, I think that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You know, I, I'm not electable. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, the logistic and the, time, and the timing are right. Uh, let's think about other things. Uh, but we sorted through it all. And, and I thought long and hard about the possibility of running for governor. And with the encouragement of some people in the state who also thought it would be a pretty good idea, we ended up packing our bags, moving to, back to Utah, uh, loading up a Suburban, uh, which we'd driven cross-country. And we started a one-year uh, odyssey that took us to every corner of the state, every park, restaurants in every town, living rooms. I mean, it was the quintessential grassroots campaign. And in some cases, one or two people would show up. In other cases, hundreds would show up. And I had a theme that I didn't sort of veer at all from, and Mm -hmm. that was on economic development. And I had 10 points I wanted to achieve, uh, if elected governor, very specific points that I worked out. And I just took this on the road. And it was was probably one of the most enjoyable years of our lives, and the kids kind of went along.
1: All I can say is thank God they didn't say we want you to be a deep-sea diver (laughs) or— (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, do a high-wire act, or, although <laughs> politics is. So you had this odyssey. It ended well. Uh, you got elected. It ended well, yeah. The Huntsman name was a good name as well in Utah. Your, your dad had done a lot of philanthropy in the state. He was well-regarded as a businessman, been active in the civic life of the state. So that, that clearly didn't hurt you.
0: Oh, it didn't hurt. But it cuts both ways. You know, when you're coming up as the second... Uh, you, you can have people who hold that against you. The success of the first, because in order to get uh, to that point of success, sometimes you you gotta you gotta be uh, aggressive, and uh, sometimes folks feel like they're left out or whatever, or it just creates uh, uh, a- a- enmity. Uh, and in you know in politics, that that can be held against you. So on one hand, I had a lot of real true believers. On others, it was proved to me that you can do the task you're young you didn't come up the traditional route through the state legislature through the county commission what makes you better than the others who are running And it was a crowded field we had including the uh, the incumbent governor Oline walker uh first uh, woman governor in state history who had taken over when mike levitt uh took the job at epa under george w bush right. so she so was in
1: the primary she was a fellow republican
0: Yes, that's right. And so she she was up in the odds-on favorite. And uh, the primary, we have a convention system in Utah. The convention was very very crowded. Probably eight good candidates: uh, Speaker of the House, former President, of the Senate. You know, your typical roundup mm-hmm. of state leaders. And uh, and we worked the precincts extraordinarily uh, uh, diligently. We went house by house, delegate by delegate. And you got to have a couple thousand to to, to win. And uh, we spent the better part of that year just working. It was just hand-to-hand combat, just getting around and talking to people, conversation by conversation. And, and in any event, we were successful through the convention, and got out into a primary. Uh, the incumbent governor, Governor Walker, did not get through the primary, so she dropped at that point. And I was in out on a uh, in a one-on-one situation in a primary, and uh, and beat that guy. And then went on to run against uh, Scott Matheson, Jr. Yeah. Son of a former Democratic son, governor. Son, son of probably the most beloved governor in the history of our, in yeah. recent history of our state. And he himself, uh, a superb person. Yeah, uh, former Ro- U.S. attorney. Road Scholar, uh, Dean of the Law School at University of Utah. And we ran one of these very unusual high road campaigns where you don't... You
1: uh, know, what does that look
0: like? I- you know, you, you don't squawk at each other. You don't put goofy, uh, negative campaign ads on the air. You talk about the issues. And we had some issues in common, but we also diverged on some pretty key issues. And uh, And we had respectful debates, uh, got right to the issues at hand, uh, pointed out our differences, uh, and did it in a very respectful way. Uh, sounds weird. I don't know. I know. It, it sounds so 19th century. <laughs> But but it, but it's great. And anyway, I remember so well the the night of our victory, uh, we talked by phone. And I said, Scott, either I go to your headquarters or you come to the hotel ballroom where we are and we're going to shake hands. Because he wanted to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. And he came over to the hotel ballroom. And we hugged each other in the lobby in front of the cameras who were there. And I remember the news the next day was... A highly unusual event occurred <laughs> in the state of Utah. There was there was a, a high road campaign that ended with a hug, you know, with the Republican and the Democrat. But that was my uh, uh, that that was my experience with what I'd call the ultimate high road campaign. And I thought the people benefited from that campaign because there wasn't money or airtime wasted on frivolous discussion. It was all on where I wanted to go, where Scott wanted to go, and people understood it. This, I want to talk a little bit about that in a
1: minute because the the obvious question is that was 12 years ago. Not that long, but it sounds, as you say, like from a completely different time and place and yeah. whether you think that kind of politics still has uh, a place in the kind of political culture that's evolved now. But uh, before I do, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, governorship because— um, you were—we were talking about this before we, we sat down here. You were um, widely viewed around the country as a solidly conservative governor, uh, and on most of the big issues, you would line up with what today we would consider solidly conservative positions. But you—you you, uh, were involved in a in this uh, Western cap and trade um, uh, approach to. Uh, to climate change. Uh, you had your own v- version of health reform that you uh, pushed. Um, you, uh, you were not an absolutist on some of the issues that are very, um, very key in Republican primaries in particular uh, today. Um, w- when you look back and you look at the debate today, um, how did we get from there to here? Boy, Where almost, John Hutsman, Hans,
0: Huntsman is now a a liberal, it's it, David. It's almost like looking back at the time of Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, <laughs> the, the progressive period of Republican politics. We forget that, and in my mind, I differentiate it like this: the the pre Lehman collapse Republican Party and the post Lehman collapse Republican Party. Because I lived both. I was hermetically sealed in China, thanks to you and the White House. And I enjoyed every minute of that. It was a terrific design. Not
1: sealed like, enough. You came back in <laughs> wrath. <laughs>
0: well, we Somehow some air got needed, in. We needed some new excitement <laughs> in, in life. Uh, but it was almost like you're hermetically sealed in Beijing and that bad air in Beijing. You remember the Republican Party pre Lehman collapse, which was optimistic, innovative, creative, uh, uh, willing to embrace. New designs, as was the case with a lot of the governors around the environment, and we
1: should point out that climate that led, that the the cap and trade idea, uh, basically raising the price of carbon, was a Republican idea in the yeah. in the nineteen nineties. Uh, health
0: healthcare exchanges were a Republican that's right idea. That's right. Uh, market you, solutions you go back to to the uh, the cap and trade around uh, socks and knocks back in the early 1970s when uh, richard nixon created the epa when william ruckelshaus was the first epa director uh, 1972 i i think it was and um so the republican party has a long history with uh with the environment conservation uh, protection. We we've just lost it along the way, but there was a period there, David. You'll remember pre-Lehman. Let's call it the pre-Lehman uh, collapse period, where uh, Republican governors and I recall so well, as as chair of the Western Governors Association, we'd all sit down, Republicans and Democrats alike, and we talk about. Uh, the environment. We talk about water. We talk about climate-related issues. And everybody was kind of looking again on the same page. It wasn't like a do you believe, do you not believe kind of thing. There wasn't the political divide that exists today that is so deep and I think injurious to a healthy conversation. And and the same was true on health care reform. There were a lot of novel and innovative things that were taking place among Republican governors at the time around health care and how to deal with rising costs and how to deal with With a different approach from insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So, and then post Lehman, after returning from China, uh, the party was angry. It was divided. The Tea Party had uh, risen up. And uh, for all reasons that I think are perfectly understandable, the economic storm left everybody in a hole. Uh, uh, Retirements had been lost. Home values had been significantly diminished uh, unemployment was on the rise and people were scared. A- and uh, and it totally changed the whole demeanor of politics. And as, I, as we approached running in 2012, it was, well, you can either become something altogether new and uh, pretend you didn't do the things you did just a couple years earlier as governor, or you can run on your record. And I thought, well, there, that's not even a discussion as far as I'm concerned. You run on what you've done. Some things people will like, some things people won't like. But, uh, you know, as sometimes is the case, maybe you underestimate uh, how strongly people feel in the post-Lehman collapse world about uh, things like immigration reform. We led the charge on Western states' immigration reform. I got together with Janet Napolitano, who was then governor of Arizona, and the rest of the Western governors, 20 plus of them, in creating... Basically, a roadmap on immigration reform. Every governor in the Western United States bought into it, and we signed it. You go look it up and look at the principles for uh, uh, for immigration, uh, uh, comprehensive immigration reform. And I suspect when we when we get around to doing this issue at some point, it'll look very similar to what we did many many years ago.
1: And yet, if you listen to the Republican debate right now, those things, immigration reform. Any embrace of uh, climate change or some sort of governmental
0: approach to solving it, right?
1: Uh, health reform, these are red flag issues. These are disqualifying. You can't, even, you
0: can't even have these conversations. So imagine me in a town hall meeting early on when somebody wants an explanation as to why I was in favor of giving a driver privilege card to an undocumented worker. Well, as a governor, I had to deal with these real-world issues. You know, How do you keep the labor force uh, mobilized such that we can uh, address our, our growing economy, which at the time, Utah was the fastest-growing economy in the country. Right. Uh, how do you do it in a way that's safe, that doesn't make it you know, a driver's license, that, where they can't uh, use it as an identification card, but still keep the economy going? So we had to think through these issues uh, in real time. And they became huge liabilities later on and uh, still are today. Well,
1: look at what's happened in this race. All the governors, I mean, historically governors were the most competitive candidates for president because they had executive experience, they knew how to deal with legislatures and so on. Every single governor save one, John Kasich, who's, you know, with all due respect to him because I think he's run a very good campaign, but he's a very long shot at this point, Mm. All the governors have gone out. Jeb Bush started as a front runner. He's he's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Christie gone, uh, and mostly uh, really uh, battered by the fact that they made decisions as governors that involved
0: compromises. And how about Walker, Jindal? Oh yeah, right. Perry, right. These were the hottest commodities in the United States. They were gone States. so long ago; I forgot and, to mention them. But but think about it, David. I mean, it's absolutely uh, an unbelievable commentary on where politics has come the last few years, uh, and how sharp the turn actually is that uh, that the party has made away from that kind of governance. These were the hottest of hot commodities, and each of them uh, a bright red Republican. I mean, Rick Perry had the had the hottest economy in the country highest job growth of any state by far in America, and a true conservative. Uh, Bobby Jindal, uh, very much a movement conservative, and Walker was seen as a hero among many for what he did with public unions. And he, I look back at it now and I see, and every one of them gone. All of them had their faces on the cover cover of Time and Newsweek at one point saying- Which are also almost gone. This is that's, the, the yeah, that's, that's a different, yeah. uh, different subject. Uh, but all, all of them a uh, political anachronism.
1: Yeah. So what does that say? Because basically they were, in different ways, unattractive. Uh, I mean, they're, they each had their own liabilities, but there was a common element, which is governors have to govern, and therefore they have to make compromises. They have right. to deal with, uh, as you say, real-world circumstances. And what you have left now are two freshman uh, Republican senators, and I'm not belittling freshman senators becoming president, but two <laughs> freshman senators and Donald Trump. Um, what, what does that say about where we are in our politics and, and about uh, the value of experience and, and the ability to forge compromise?
0: Well, I think it may say more about the demographics of, of the Republican Party than it does about experience as a governor versus experience as a legislator. Uh, and I think it probably speaks a lot to the streak of populism that has grown out of the Republican Party. It's almost like we're, th- we're seeing a new party that is being born before our very eyes. I mean, we're morp- we're, the Republican Party is morphing into something that doesn't at all resemble what it has been in the last, uh, in the last many election cycles. And I think it's a direct outgrowth of the demographics that underlie uh, the Republican movement Uh, and what has happened to people uh, in the last uh, generation in terms of the economy, in terms of how they feel about where their country sits vis-a-vis the rest of the world, uh, and and their own sense of security. Mm -hmm.
1: Which is all what uh, Trump is talking to. We should say, though, that the Republican Party is not monolithic, and you have— You know, Trump has really run up the score among non college educated Republicans who have probably been most impacted by changes in the economy. Uh, You have other sort of Republicans who you're probably more accustomed to who are center right, more corporate oriented uh, Republicans who really don't, they're searching for now Rubio's emerged as their dog in in this fight here, but uh, are not really with a can. There's no Mitt Romney. In this, uh, in this group. Um, and then you have the social conservatives uh, who Senator Cruz is champion. So you really have a factionalized uh, party over there. But let, let's talk about Trump. Uh, you know, I'm looking at you and you're talking about your early days cutting trade deals, your time in China, uh, you talk about immigration reform, you talk about climate change. You are exactly what Donald Trump is running against. In so many different ways. And yet he may be the candidate of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about some of those positions. I mean, let's pretend I'm Donald Trump here, except I'm going to let you talk. Uh, And uh, talk a little bit about um, China, first of all, about trade and about this wall that he wants to build. And why is he wrong, in your view? And why is it wrong for the Republican Party if, if you think it is?
0: Well, I, I don't think he's wrong on all of his issues, and I think that's one of the reasons he's got increasingly broad-based support. So he's nationalistic. Uh, he's populist. Uh, he's uh, got the old Buchanan-Perot uh, approach to the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say build here first. And I think he's absolutely right. I mean, that's that's one of the problems we have today. We've got a very weak infrastructure in this country, literally and figuratively, that must be addressed because you can't practice your values Abroad, you can't preach them unless you're practicing them more perfectly right. here at home. So that's where we find ourselves. And he's my my issue with all of the above, whether trade, whether immigration, uh, is that we're we're distilling everything to a soundbite, to a bumper sticker. These are highly complicated issues. You can't sit down and do a trade deal uh, and expect to throw a tariff on another country without some sort of response and reprisal that's going to be very difficult for this country uh, to navigate its way through. You look at uh, Mexico, Japan, and China simply throwing a tariff uh, on uh, that would affect our trading relationship. It would be immediately retaliated against, which starts a trade war, which throws you into a tailspin that would affect the global economy. It'd be a horrible thing. That said, can you make trade deals better? Of course you can make trade deals better. They're always getting better. You look at trade deals that were done a couple of generations ago, just sort of post GATT and pre-WTO, and you look at those that have emerged post-WTO, and and they get a little bit better with each passing generation. And you get more people bought into uh, leveling the playing field, bringing down tariff and non-tariff barriers, and letting goods flow. What
1: about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that the, the- – the president has uh,
0: has has now turned over to Congress. It, it, it isn't perfect, but it's better than doing nothing. Uh, we don't live in a in a static world. Uh, to imagine that if 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 we don't engage, that things are just going to stay neutral in the region. No, not so. The Asia Pacific is highly dynamic, and China is a very aggressive player in Asia Pacific. They've already got their own version of TPP. The standards are not nearly as high as the. The content that we've negotiated in terms of protection of intellectual property rights, trade facilitation, financial services, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if we're not in there playing a role as a leader, as we always have, uh, then somebody else is going to fill that vacuum. And chances are they're going to be less benevolent, and the chances are they're going to put forward uh, standards of trade and economic uh, conduct uh, that are going to be more uh, not nearly what they would be otherwise if the United States was leading the charge. And I think that's a bad outcome.
1: Trump, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard this, but he he talks about China outsmarting American leaders and that China is much more sophisticated, much more uh, uh, that they've uh, taken us to the cleaners on deals that we've struck and so on. Uh, you were over there representing the United States. What, what What's your response to that?
0: Well, I've been involved with China for uh, decades in business, as a diplomat, as a trade negotiator, uh, in in every conceivable possible way. Uh, I've seen the worst business deals in the world done by the smart business people. Uh, I've seen bad trade deals. I've seen good business deals. I've seen good trade deals. So you can't just uniformly say that the government guys are getting it wrong And the business guys have it all right. China is a very tricky marketplace, Uh, and it takes a lot of years to understand it. And once you understand it, the rules of the road change in China because they're uh, dealing with internal economic reform today more aggressively than they have at any other time since Zhu Rongji was a premier before they got into the World Trade Organization. So, again, it makes for an easy bumper sticker. It makes for an easy soundbite, but we're talking about an issue that is highly complicated, that is going to need both sides coming to the table for us to be mighty aggressive. I mean, the United States has to be an aggressive negotiator.
1: Has the United States been an aggressive negotiator? Uh,
0: I, I don't think we've been as engaged as we, sh- as we should be. Uh, I think there's a lot we've left on the table because China is, uh, is an is – an, uh, unhappy political story for the most part. There's a lot of downside, not a lot of upside. So I think you can take the position where I think I'm just going to manage my way through it and not do anything uh, uh, too aggressive for fear that it could backfire on me uh, and blow back as a bad political story. So so I think we probably left a lot on the table that otherwise could have been gained. And we're just sort of managing the downside How do you risk. think that Chinese, uh, how, what would it mean for our
1: relationships there and some of the other countries you dealt with if uh,
0: a a figure like Trump were actually elected president? Well, the the Chinese would uh, look at it and say, we now have uh, a a relationship based somewhat on equality. Uh, We're the big players on the world stage. Um, We're going to negotiate in good faith, uh, and uh, based on a level playing field even though we don't get it from them and they're going they would watch a new president as they always do very very carefully and uh, if there was an attempt to impose a tariff that they would deem to to be uh, unfair up would go uh, a counter tariff in response to it and you'd have a tit for tat that would play out a trade war and a trade war of sorts yeah. could
1: you um and i you know i understand these are but I'm sitting here thinking: Could you support Trump if he were the nominee of the Republican Party?
0: Let, let me tell you what I like about Trump, because I, you know, there are some things. Okay, like, then, then tell me what you, like, whether you could support him if he's a candidate <clears throat> like, for president, l- like the wall and like tariffs. Um, the, these are issues that I think make good sound bites, and people cheer them on as as they did when I was running four years ago. When all the candidates would say, and we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. That's all you had to say and people would stand up and cheer. Did you say it? I never did because I I knew all the while that, first of all, I was working on health care reform in my own state Mm -hmm. and uh, I I knew the complexity of it all and- in some cases, there were some things you could get done, and other things you could not get done. But it's going to take. Do you think a long it, time. it would ever be repealed and replaced? No. no matter who is the president. No, but that that was—that was, that was my feeling throughout. There, there's no way that anybody's going to repeal and replace. This is just a soundbite. So I became very wary of the soundbite culture around presidential politics. Uh, oh boy, and and the problem is, <laughs> hadn't gotten better, my friend. <laughs> the, the problem is the debates uh, and 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 the and the news cycles are all kind of geared to soundbite politics. Mm-hmm. And if you can't fit it into a soundbite, you're not going to get on the air. Uh, and if you want to get a soundbite, uh, it's well, he's be short, figured heavy. that out for sure. And and and, and he's and, dominated. It does a huge disservice toward our, to our political debate.
1: But but um, you still haven't answered my question. Could you support him
0: if he were the nominee? Here's here's why I could support him because he's uh, strong on things like campaign finance reform. And I think it's going to take a, 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 an extraordinary, extraordinarily unique leader to stand up and say the way that we're doing this on the campaign finance side is broken and we need to fix it. I think he's right about uh, bringing on board uh, a new generation of the best and the brightest and wiping out the old Washington establishment and the old Washington culture. I think that's a healthy thing. I'd love to see someone stand out, who's stand up, who's a total outsider, and uh, see if that can be done. Because I think it would actually be a pretty, pretty healthy thing. So
1: you might, you you might embrace him if he were the nominee.
0: Well, if he's the nominee, I mean, I'm, I'm a Republican. I tend to gravitate to whomever the nominee is. I just happen to think that this go around we have a very unusual uh, possibility if he makes it that far. And I think the chances are better than fifty fifty that he makes it to the finish line in terms of the nomination. You do. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised by that? Uh, n- n- not anymore. Uh, <laughs> I-, I, went on one TV show that, that you've probably been on a thousand times back in late summer and basically said, you know, if, if he does well in Ohio, which he did, if he does well in New Hampshire, and certainly if he does well in South in Carolina, Iowa, in Iowa. In, in Iowa yeah. New Hampshire and South Carolina, he's, uh, he's there. Mm-hmm. He'll build up such a head of steam that he'll, he'll be unstoppable. And now we're there. And now we're there.
1: Um, there's been talk about Michael Bloomberg getting in. You, you belong to a no-labels movement that sort of uh, speaks to a less partisan approach to politics. Bloomberg is talking about running for president as an independent. Um, what do you think the likelihood of success of that candidacy is? And, and stipulating that you gravitate toward the Republican candidate, would you feel a pull toward
0: a candidacy like his? I think the demographics of politics in America today, David, are going to take us uh, increasingly in that direction, simply because you've got more unaffiliated, uh, unaligned voters today than ever before. What is it, 42%, 45% of, of the American voting public? Republicans have come down to, what, 25%, Democrats maybe at 27%. You've got a huge block who are unaffiliated. And I think the marketplace, because politics is very much a, a real live marketplace, it uh, is it mo- always moving. Uh, and always changing to the, con- to, to the conditions of the country. Uh, I think eventually we find ourselves with viable third-party options. I think we're maybe a couple of election cycles away from it. But my guess is that Mike Bloomberg, who's a smart guy, he's going to look at the barriers that stand in the way of actually getting it done, uh, like the electoral college system, like the uh, difficulty in getting uh, uh, ballot access uh, to all uh, 50 states, which is an enormous hurdle for an independent to get over. And probably the uh, the uh, the exclusive nature of the presidential debates themselves, which pretty much cater to the duopoly, red and blue, Republican Democrat, uh, that's a real hurdle for independents if they if they are left out of the presidential debates. So my guess is that he would look at it, crunch the numbers as, as he's have you talked to do- him at all? I talked to him after twenty Mm-hmm. When we were being encouraged uh, to go as an independent, I never thought it was a viable thing to do and not very interested in it. But we had a couple of conversations. And he was very, uh, very candid about uh, the conclusions that he'd drawn when he looked at it himself uh, on a national basis.
1: You served as uh, President Obama's ambassador, as the U.S. ambassador to uh, China for your first two years. The Secretary of State was Hillary Clinton. And you must have had, given the importance of your posting, you must have had— some interaction with her in that role.
0: What, what was your impression of her as secretary of state? Hardworking, diligent, uh, always read the briefing books and was prepared for every meeting, uh, embraced complex issues, uh, digested the data and was always competent at the negotiating table is what I walked away from. And, uh, which of these skills do you think will serve her well in the race for president? <laughs> well, well, n- and none of that would suggest that you're a good politician. So I'm just saying as an effective diplomat, he has some of the things you have to do, you've got you to understand the subject matter. Uh, you have to be a good negotiator. You have to uh, interact well with people. One of the things that uh, the Chinese and I suspect most countries of the world liked about Hillary Clinton was that she was a celebrity, so they could deal with a Secretary of State who was uh, very much a celebrity. That's a big deal; it brings them face. And actually, when 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 President Obama,
1: President-elect Obama, was putting his cabinet together, one of the things that he said was, "I am going to be absorbed with this epic economic crisis, and I need a Secretary of State who is going to be instantly known and respected." when they land in another country. And they, if she's the secretary of state, they will know they're not getting the B team, that she is a personage to be dealt with. And what you're saying is that that was,
0: that was right. She was a hard worker. And I have to say that uh, you know, I've been in and out of the State Department uh, during d- different phases of my career. And I've seen a lot of different secretaries of state. And some do well with the Uh, professional bureaucracy which you have to work the diplomats the foreign service officers they're good they're smart uh there's entry by way of uh, the foreign service uh, exam and uh they take their work very seriously and and they don't want to screw up as their secretary Uh, they want to know that uh, that person is at the top of their game and responsive to the needs of the department and will interact well with the regional uh, uh professionals she did well with the department I mean, Colin Powell was another person who did well with the department. George Schultz did very well with the department. Uh, Some of them less so. They get the Praetorian Guard around them and uh, lock themselves on the seventh floor and don't interact a whole lot. I think she got pretty high marks from the professionals as being somebody.
1: Did you email with her? No.
0: I see. There may be some emails about Mm -hmm. (laughs) what some of the work. I hope nothing classified, but.
1: (laughs) So you, uh, I'm sure we'll find out. You, um. You mentioned that these are not necessarily political skills. These are skills that are useful as a secretary, say presumably Mm -hmm. useful as a president. What's your observation of her as a politician, having run for office and having run for president? Uh, She's had had her challenges
0: uh, in this campaign. Why? I think some might be generational. I think some might be family name fatigue. Uh, I think some might be her inability to capture the emotion of the moment and to articulate it properly uh, back to the voting population. So the mechanics of hard work and making sure you've got a good team in place, I think all of that is just to be assumed that she can do well. But I think some of the other parts of a successful campaigner. Uh, maybe are, are missing or not up to where they might be uh, for a successful candidate.
1: Knowing, knowing her as you do, when you see her on TV, is she the person that you, you dealt with? I mean, does she strike you uh,
0: as, um, as coming across as the way you know her? She was different as a diplomat because she was all professional all the time. And it was uh, you know it, it was it was diplomacy. It was the issues. It was North Korea. It was human rights. it was trade mm-hmm. uh, and And so it was a much different male you. So when I see her on the stump, sometimes shrieking about mm, the politics of the moment, uh, I say, even as a Republican, about a, a Democrat, you know, if people could see her. As I saw her when she was in the trenches in some pretty difficult circumstances representing the United States, they would they would think differently about her.
1: Would you uh, Were you surprised when she uh, backed away from the TPP?
0: I was. I think that was a political calculation. And that's something that I don't think is going to wear well over the longer term. You would
1: have advised her not to do that, oh, even
0: yeah. given the populist sense that you see. A- ab- absolutely. I think people will give you higher marks for consistency. They might disagree with you at the moment and uh, it might hurt a little bit, but I think over time, they give you higher marks for consistency. Do you have uh, sympathy
1: for these people running for president? Oh, totally. Totally did. Do. do you ever find yourself saying,
0: gee, I wish I was out there again? Do you, do you wake up in a cold sweat every now and again, you know, as as, as Jeb Bush is probably doing about right now? You know, it, rep- it, re- it represented for us so campaigning for governor was, you know, a completely different thing. You, here are the issues. You get out in glad hand. You put forward your best argument, and, and you can control the narrative. Yeah, it's Running, kind of two
1: dimensional versus
0: three dimensional. It's 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 very much three dimensional, and on the the presidential platform is very much that. Uh, the the best of moments and the worst of moments. You have. Uh, days of tremendous uh, euphoria and success and days of deep despair uh, and questioning whether uh, you have what it takes, uh, why you got into it in the first place, if I could only burst out of this cocoon and get back to civilian life. Uh, And then the next day will come along and you'll think, This is the grandeur of politics in America at the highest levels, and I'm the most fortunate human being in the world to be able to participate in it. What
1: was the balance of days for you between the grandeur and the let me out of here? You
0: you, you might have one out of seven. The grandeur days. No, no, grandeur days are a lot more than the despair days. Oh, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah, but you you learn to be uh, an eternal optimist. (laughs) You might not start that way. You might have some things that rub you the wrong way. And in our case we had a completely new team uh, most of them I'd ever worked with before it was a completely experimental uh, approach at the presidency and uh, and so you got to get to know people and they don't know you you don't know them as as well and you, you got you, you end up finding the right rhythm a routine for the campaign and and we knew for us uh, it would be New Hampshire and we put all our chips down in New Hampshire and worked As it. did a number of other people this time. <laughs> As did a lot of New other Hampshire people. New Hampshire can break hearts. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. Took third in New Hampshire, loved every minute of it. It was absolutely terrific for our whole family. My daughter uh, has written an article in uh, Glam- for Glamour Magazine this month about what it's like when your dad has to bow out of the race. Uh, uh, this uh, is uh, Abby who wrote This me? is Abby, mm-hmm. yeah. A moment even more difficult than... Uh, than than any of the travails while in the race, and she spells it out beautifully. It's nicely articulated. If if anyone in the listening audience gets a chance, they can go to go, go to read it, and because she captures it in in fifteen hundred words or whatever. But we wouldn't trade it for anything. Wouldn't trade it for for anything in life. Would you do it again? You know, I'd love to do it again if the circumstances were right. But I, I'm not the kind of person who, based on ego because i'm not a person of ego and i can't stand being around people with egos and unfortunately there are too many of those in politics and that's maybe why i don't mix well with other politicians yeah, that's tough if you don't like <laughs> egos politics is a tough business i love people and, and i love ideas and i love moving people toward greater heights of of hope and expectation and i've seen that in politics and when it works it's a, it's a beautiful thing Uh, But I've also seen the enormous egos in politics, and it turns me off like nothing else. But you'd have to find that match between what you bring to the table, your attitude, your temperament, your experience, your family, with that opening in history. And if it's a mismatch, why waste your time? If there's a match, there might be, there might not be. Given the current trajectory of politics, I doubt it because I, I was hoping for a race to the top, not a race to the bottom in terms of how we talked about the issues and how we interacted one with another. And you mentioned no labels. You know, it isn't as much a middle-of-the-road thing uh, or a nonpartisan thing. We, we have liberals. We have Tea Party people. Right. It's about bringing... to the table your best argument Mm -hmm. but then at the end of the day remembering that you got to deliver for the american people you got to solve problems and you can't solve problems locked in your respective partisan corners on capitol hill that does the taxpayer a huge disservice you got to roll up your sleeves compromise and figure out how to get it done just like reagan and tip o'neill used to do it like clinton and speaker gingrich used to do when they balanced the budget when nobody said it could be done uh we've seen chapters of this happen in this great republic of ours but we haven't seen it in a while and, uh, that's, that's the kind of politics that I practiced as governor with Republicans, Democrats, and independents. I think it's why we got elected with the highest vote in the history of the state. By uh, we, you mean you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have a hard time saying me. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, that may that's be a, another problem. A, I don't know. George H.W. Bush is over <laughs> the highest order. Yeah. But when, when I remember this on the campaign trail people would say, you got to talk about yourself. I, I don't like to talk about, I hate doing that kind of thing. I hate saying I I I me me me. It just doesn't come naturally as part of my vocabulary. Uh, and I'll tell you another interesting thing, David. Going from um, work in the most compartmented, complicated embassy anywhere in the world—that of that of, uh, that of uh, the U.S. mission in China—where you work literally and figuratively in a f- in a foreign language. Going from that milieu to the circus-like atmosphere of the presidential campaign trail, you know, your your mind's got to make a fairly quick adjustment between, you know, the 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 quiet diplomacy around issues like North Korea to the banging the the, the tin pot, you know, before the throngs of people who want to hear red meat. Uh, it's a it's a transition that I I obviously navigated imperfectly, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, John Huntsman, I appreciate
1: you talking about yourself here against your will. We forced you to talk about yourself. (laughs) That was part of the deal, David. Happy to do it. it. It's a great story. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. And thank you for inaugurating our new partnership with CNN. You've been a great first guest for that enterprise.
0: Happy to do it, David. What a treat to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.